Good morning, beloved. Uh, this past Monday was a special day for us. <clears throat> it's been a long time coming, but Leland has graduated from uh, the Learn to Play program for hockey to actual league hockey. And so as dad, a former hockey player, um, that sounds very official, like I was really good or something. But, um, you know, as a former hockey player, I've been very excited about this day. Uh, Monday was his evaluation skate. And so that is where um, all these kids come out and they play hockey, they do different drills, they scrimmage, and the coaches are just watching to try to figure out, like, who's going to be on what team and all this stuff. And so this is a pretty important day for him. I've been hyping it up and everything, and um, he gets there, and it's in the evening, and so he has already done all kinds of fun things throughout the day, and I kept telling him before I left work, like, hey, you need to make sure that you rest a little today because you have trials tonight, and you need to make sure that you're ready for that. Um, <clears throat> so, of course, he did not rest, but we get there, and they start off, and they're doing all these intense drills, and I'm just watching as the time goes on, and like, you know, the kind of the ups and downs, like, yeah, good job, you did great on that, like, oh, let's hope nobody saw that one, things like that. Um, but I realize we're about an hour into it before um, his group was going to scrimmage last, and that's like your time to shine. That's when you show, like, this is the real thing, like, this is the actual game, and um, he's going to scrimmage last, and I'm just watching as the night goes on where he's getting more and more exhausted, and so he gets to the point where he's going to scrimmage, they start the game off and at first he's doing great he's he's all over the place he's got his head up he's seeing where the puck is and all the stuff and um, things are going pretty well but like within minutes he's kind of like went from like full-on attack mode to like he's got one hand on the stick and he's just kind of looking around and like pucks over there so he turns and he's coming this way and like there's a big wall of glass between us and everything he can't hear anything I'm saying but I just want so bad to like call him over to me because I need to talk to him because I know this scenario because I've lived it repeatedly when I played hockey, that when I was a hockey player, I would do the same thing. I just kind of like get into this mode where it's like, all right, well, let's go. Oh, here we go. And in that invariably, every single game, my dad, who I have a wonderful relationship with, and he is a totally nice guy, so just know that, but he would have to call me over to the side, and he'd grab me by the helmet and shove his face in my face, and he'd be like, Kevin, they stole your puck. That is your puck. Go get the puck and take it and put it in the net now. And I'd be like, yeah. And he'd be like, get mad, Kevin. Go. And then I would go do it. And I would actually score most of the time. Like, it was amazing how just like dad taking me over and having this talk, like, this is who you are. They took your puck. Now go. Like, it would totally change the game for me. That I needed, I needed dad to say, this is who you are. This is what you're doing. Now do it. There's something about dad saying, hey, wake up, that I needed. And, and I like, please know, like, we can get in some troubled waters here if we take this too far. But in so many ways, this reminds me of what has happened as we're going through Luke. And what has happened here in the gospel according to Luke, um, Jesus was just baptized. Pastor Reggie took us through this text last week talking about John preaching this ministry of baptism of repentance. He's preparing the way for Jesus. And at the end of that text, Jesus shows up the one he's been making the way ready for. And Jesus is baptized. God the Father calls out, affirming, saying, this is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. And the spirit of God descends in the form of a dove and lands on him, anointing Jesus. So Jesus has been affirmed, like this is truly the son of God by the voice of the Father and the anointing of the spirit coming down on him. And so here we have God the Father publicly affirming with his voice. It's like God is saying like, Jesus, this is who you are. This is who you are. Now go take care of business. And what does Jesus do? Do you know this story? The next thing in the story is that Jesus launches out into the wilderness to go to war with Satan. 
I go, is this who I am? We, I say this a lot with, with people when we, when we have the, the beauty of celebrating baptism. It's kind of like putting on the team jersey. Like, this is who I am, and I'm gonna profess this to the world, that I identify with Christ. And so put on the jersey. And so why, why would Jesus need to put on the jersey? Like, it's team Jesus, right? Does Jesus need to put on the jersey? And you may be thinking like, okay, baptism of repentance, and then Jesus shows up. Baptism of repentance means there's sin and I need to repent of that. And so baptism is this way of preparing my heart and it's like this whole kind of figurative washing away of sin. Like Jesus is the sinless one. What is this? And that's exactly it. That's the beauty of it. Is that this is a, a foretelling, this is a picture Jesus is showing us of Jesus, the sinless one, is now going to take on sin and take it into the waters of judgment to wash it away. It's a picture of what is to come, his mission that Jesus, the sinless one, is going to take sin on himself and deal with it. And so that has happened. God the Father is like, this is you, you're my son, now let's go. And Jesus is like, I'm going. And so they go off, and so we're gonna be in Luke chapter four. Um, Luke chapter four, if you wanna turn in your copy of scripture with me, we're gonna start at verse one, Luke chapter four, picking up the story, um, but there's a break here. And while you're turning there, I want to explain this break, that we've gone from the storyline of Jesus being born, John the Baptist being born, John the Baptist ministry, Jesus coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, and so you have all of that, and then Luke kind of hits pause for a moment on the story, and all of a sudden throws in all of this genealogy. And so he has this genealogy as he began his ministry. Jesus was about 30 years old and thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi. And there's a whole bunch of names and generations that go all the way back to the end of chapter three where it says, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And so Luke has hit pause on the story to now suddenly throw in a genealogy. And if you've read Matthew's gospel, you're like, well, that one made a whole lot more sense because he started with that. But Luke is like, oh, wait, did I forget? I need to throw this in there. And I wanna, I wanna show you the beauty of why he did that as we go through this today. But now we're picking back up into the story. So jump back into the story after this short little intermission where he gives us genealogy. And Luke chapter four, verse one, it says, then Jesus left the Jordan. So what happened? He was just baptized. God the Father affirmed him, speaking from heaven. The spirit descended like a dove, anointing him. So then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. So Jesus has gone into the wilderness. And who led him into the wilderness? God the Spirit. God the Spirit has led God the Son into the wilderness, away from people, away from civilization, away from comfort, away from provision, into the wilderness where the wild animals are and where there is not readily available food. And in fact, Jesus now is fasting, and he fasts for 40 days. He is hungry. But why did the Spirit lead him in there? To be tempted. You think, oh man. God the Spirit led God the Son into the wilderness to be in a vulnerable place for humans where he's now going to fast and make himself even more vulnerable. He is starving. He is literally at this point going to be starving to death. He is vulnerable. He's fasting, and yet the Spirit led him here to be tempted. So in his place of weakness, he is tempted, and for 40 days this goes on. And 40 is a, a number used repeatedly in Scripture that has a lot of meaning. When we see the use of 40 in Scripture, you should think of instances like Noah on the ark when it rained for 40 days. 
as judgment is unleashed on the earth, as the, there's this flood. Moses is in Egypt for 40 years before he sees some things that he doesn't like about his people being abused, and he leaves after killing uh, an Egyptian, and he's then in the wilderness for 40 years, and then after those 40 years, he comes back after seeing God in a burning bush, and like, what is this? This is the I am that I am, and God sends him back to Pharaoh, where he takes them, and then he leads the people out into the wilderness, and because of their unbelief, what happens? They wander for another 40 years. And then at the end of the wandering, when the generation has passed and now Joshua is going to lead the people of God, this new generation, into the promised land, he sends spies out. And how long do these spies go into Canaan? Forty days. And so 40 shows up over and over and over. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. You remember this last summer or two summers ago? I can't remember anything with COVID. We went through Jonah and Jonah's in Nineveh and what does he preach? This five-word message? Forty days. Forty days, Nineveh. You got 40 days. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Elijah went 40 days without food and water on Horeb. Or Ezekiel, one of my favorites, a super melodramatic prophet who once laid on his side for 40 days, symbolizing the discomfort, the the angst, the, the grotesqueness of Israel's sin. There's 40, 40, 40, 40, 40. 40 shows us it's a period of trial. It's a period of testing or probation. And so here is Jesus in the wilderness, in the wild, for 40 days, vulnerable, weak, fasting, and yet led here intentionally by God the Spirit, full of the Spirit, so that he could be tempted. And this is what happens. So verse three, we pick up. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Then Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone the first of the recorded temptations, that Satan comes to Jesus who has been starving to death, quite literally. He's in a vulnerable place, he's out in the elements, and all of this, starving, he's hungry, but he's committed to this, and Satan comes and is like, hey, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Wouldn't that be nice? You haven't eaten in 40 days. Look at that rock. What if that rock was hot, just lovely bread? You just imagine like you pull it apart and all this like smell of it. Okay, you're the son of God. Tell that rock to become bread. You won't be hungry anymore, right? And what does Jesus say? (laughs) It is written, meaning in the Old Testament, in the scriptures. So he's, he's quoting scripture here. In the face of this temptation, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. And so why does Jesus resist this temptation? Because to do so, would be to not trust and rely on God's provision. I'll I'll provide for myself. And and that would make God the Son now operate independent of God the Father. That if God says, you are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased, and the Spirit anoints him, and then Jesus goes out, led by God the Spirit. Now for Jesus to take matters into his own hands, okay, I'm gonna make that rock into some bread. That's gonna feel great in my stomach. It's going to taste delicious. All that, that would be to say, well, God led me here, but now I'm going to provide for myself. That would be to distrust God. That would be to not believe what God announced at his baptism. That would be to call God into question. So Jesus' self-denial is affirming that his mission is self-sacrificial. This is what he has come here to do. Not to live for his own comfort, not to live for his own glory, but to actually be a sacrifice. 
to lay down his life. And so Jesus is beautifully showing us that life is more than self-preservation. Life is more than self-promotion. But isn't that what we do constantly? Like in in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment decision-making, is it not about how do I preserve myself? Or how do I promote myself? How do I exalt myself? How do I get what I want? As you think of all the things that we invest in, with our time, with our money, with all these different things. Like I share the story in opening about Leland and hockey and we go there and there's this lady who is amazing at coaching kids and you can pay her and she will give private lessons to your children and every time we see it, we're like, that would be worth every penny. Like she is really, really good. I've never seen someone that good and it's this old lady with gray hair down to her waist and she's just bawling. She does amazing. Like every kid in the Orlando area who is serious about hockey wants this lady to coach. And I think like how many people spend crazy amounts of money on that? And I am tempted to as well. And we'll, we'll pay for tutors. We'll pay for coaches. We'll pay for so many things to help our kids in these different endeavors. It's a sport. Like how much more important is our kids' eternity? Their soul. But then it comes time to like, hmm, do we, do we do church or do we do this fun extracurricular event? And suddenly it's this challenge to us. Which one has greater worth? And I'm like, hear me clearly. Don't feel guilty about missing church sometimes. But also don't miss that God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. The gathering, of, this is important for us. We must see the eternal value of coming together and worshiping God together as his bride. All these things. And so I just want to show you, like Jesus is showing us beautifully, like life cannot be about just self-preservation and self-promotion. It's actually about doing the will of God. And so when you make decisions, make them without any guilt because your priorities are listed correctly, that your greatest love is God and everything else falls under that. And so now we can see beyond the gift and see the giver and enjoy the gift rightly. So Jesus shows us this. This also, I just want to say, what a strong rebuke of the prosperity gospel. You go to church and you hear, or you turn on the TV and you hear somebody talking about how if you would just have enough faith or you'd, you'd give enough money or you'd do this or do that and then God will bless you immensely in these beautiful, tangible ways and, and look at how I have a jet and look at what I drive and all this nonsense. <laughs> look at our king. He says, no, 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 that's not the way of God. The way of God is actually to lay down ourselves. So don't believe the lie there. Verse five, we keep going. I'm running out of time. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He has time to do that. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Hey, Jesus, this is all mine right now. It's been given over to me. I have the authority to give it to who I want. And here's the thing. You want to reign over all this? You want your name to be glorious? You want to be exalted over all? Here's a quick pass. It's mine right now. I'll give it to you if you'll worship me. And what does Jesus say? No. Again, quoting scripture, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. No, I will not worship you, Satan. I will only worship God. 
The temptation for Jesus is to gain or to seize power on one's own terms. This, this is instead of trusting God and his promise and his provision, this is Jesus taking it into his own hands. And this is also Satan making a claim to sovereignty that he wants Jesus to affirm and accept. Just because Satan said it does not mean it is true. And please know, Satan is a liar. He is a liar. He does not have this kind of authority, but he wants Jesus and his humanity to fall prey to this. And here's the thing. We have to see that like Satan's promise to Jesus, the promises of sin are truly empty and they rob us of life. With every temptation, there's a promise behind that. Like, won't this be great? Won't this feel wonderful? Won't this make you so much more attractive? Won't this make you more powerful? All these promises of sin. And we must see just like Satan lying to Jesus there. It's a lie. It's empty. And it just robs us of life. That is not what God wants for us. And Jesus beautifully responds because it's really a matter of worship. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Not Satan, not yourself, but worship and serve God alone. Jesus would not compromise allegiance to God. And keep going in verse nine. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and watch what Satan does here. Now Satan starts quoting scripture. He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That is Psalm 92. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus. Now verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, now Jesus quoting scripture, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. So this is likely a vision, just taking this as, as best we can tell, um, but some possible temple locations. Satan has taken Jesus up to a high point of the temple, and so um, two logical ones that seem likely as maybe at the top of a high gate at the temple. So Jesus up there looking down like, oh, that's quite a drop, like could fall, be a public spectacle. This is crazy. And Satan's saying like, go ahead, throw yourself off. Because didn't God promise? His angels will protect you. So wouldn't this be a great way? Like prove you're the son of God. Make it known. Or another possible location, which is a lot more dramatic and exciting to me, um, the royal porch, which is over the southeast corner of the temple. This would actually overlook a bit of a cliff in the Kidron Valley down there. This would be about a 450-foot drop. As you just imagine that feeling of like, ooh, just lost my stomach looking over the edge. And Satan's like, jump. Go ahead and jump. You're a son of God? Jump. Because you remember that promise? The angels will protect you. You won't even, you won't even stub a toe. So Jump. Prove it to us. Satan is tempting Jesus. And Jesus has twice resisted the temptations with scripture, so Satan now is trying to do the same thing. Satan's attempting to use scripture. And that should terrify us. And that should be a huge lesson to us that it is possible to misuse and misinterpret scripture. So be careful what you hear and believe about scripture. People can take this sacred text and they can warp it and twist it and manipulate you with it. So we must hear what God intended for us to hear in this. And so Jesus rightly uses it in responding to Satan. That you have misused the word of God, but now he rightly uses the word of God. Don't put God to the test. So beware the false teachings, the misinterpretations. Use scripture rightly, because scripture is actually one of our best defenses, if not the best defense against temptation. Or Psalm 119.11 says, I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the psalmist is saying, like, 
I take this word and I, I bring it in. I, I feast on it. But then I, I sink it down into my heart and I treasure it. I ponder it. I don't just read it. Like I meditate. I, I keep it in there. So then when I come out and I face temptation, it's inside of me. And it helps me not to sin against you. This, this is a huge defense for us. So in your temptations, what do you have to fight with? Do you have scripture, which is called a double-edged sword? Do you have a weapon? Read it. Let it be in you so that you won't sin against God. Let it be your weapon, your defense. Satan is repeatedly challenging. He says it twice explicitly, but it's implicit in all three. If you are the son of God, he's calling into question what God has said of Jesus. He's calling into question. He's challenging what God the Father declared at God the Son, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' consequent trust in him. He's calling this into question. He's challenging it. And isn't that at the heart of all of our sin? It's a, it's a questioning. It's a doubting of God and his goodness and his provision. It's a mistrust of him. Every time we sin, we are saying, God is not who he says he is, that he is supremely satisfying, that he has everything we need. We're turning to something else. Not trusting God with what he has declared that he is for us and he loves us and he will provide for us and all these things, just like Jesus in the wilderness. We have the opportunity in every temptation to fall prey to that or to trust God and turn to God. And we all fall, right? That's the sad news here. Is that every one of us can be honest in this very moment and look back even over the last day and say, I I failed. I failed. The temptation was there for whatever sin it was. It may be some crazy extravagant sin or it may be some subtle shift in your heart. But we fail over and over and over. And so we say, well, where's the hope? Like, I, I don't want to turn away from God. I don't want to mistrust God. I want to sing that song and mean it. They're like, help my heart believe Jesus is better. Like, I, I want that, and yet I keep falling into that. So where is my hope? And that's the gospel. That is the good news. This is actually what Luke is trying to show us here. Jesus has consistently rebuked the temptations, showing that he is not on a mission for himself. The beauty in this is seeing who he is on mission for. Who is Jesus on mission for? God, but also us. You see, Jesus is quoting scripture in defense. And what does Satan do? Satan starts quoting scripture. That should be a little unnerving to us. That Satan knows the scriptures better than we do. Satan has studied the word of God. He knows what's in there. And so if you think about that, Satan knows what is happening. Satan knows that the Son of God is divine. Will you be able to take the divinity from the divine? No. Jesus will always be the Son of God. Question him, challenge him. Are you truly the Son of God? If you are, then do this. What is actually at stake there? The humanity of Jesus. And by connection, we are what is at stake in the wilderness. Because why did Jesus come? He came for you and me. And that was necessary because Jesus had to be human to save us as humans. And so Jesus is truly the divine son of God. He is fully God and yet he is also fully man. And that was necessary for our salvation 
to restore us back to what we ought to be because the first human, the first Adam sinned. He fell. And now think about this. This is what Luke is doing. Why did Luke throw in this genealogy in this seemingly random place that traces Jesus all the way back to Adam? He wants you to see his humanity there. And now he launches into this wilderness story where Jesus as a human is suffering. He's vulnerable and he's tempted, but he doesn't fall. And so now you have this contrast. Think Adam and all of us, all of us are represented in Adam. We all fall with Adam. And so by one man sin entered the world and death spread to all through Adam. And so where is Adam? Adam is in Eden. And so Eden is the perfect good creation that God has made. And he's given these instructions. Hey, take dominion, cultivate life, culture, art, all these beautiful things. Like take it to the world. Be my image, represent me to this world. Subdue it. But there's this tree in the middle of the garden. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. That's, that's my role. You don't need that. And then this serpent, who is Satan, comes slithering in. And this cosmic story, and, and the serpent is crafty and deceptive, and there's Adam and Eden, Adam and Eve in Eden, and they're standing there, and the serpent starts to talk, and he's like, hey, hey, you want that? Well, here's the thing, like, you eat that, and you're actually gonna be like God. He's holding out on you. He's calling into question God's character. He's making them question if they should trust in him. And what does Adam do? Here in paradise, in full bliss, perfect union with God, the world is good. None of it is broken. Adam is in paradise and he's faced with temptation. And what does he do? He succumbs. He falls and fails and the curse is brought on everything. But now here is the second Adam, the true and greater Adam, Jesus, the son of God, the true son of God, who is born and now fully God and yet fully man, the true man comes into the wilderness by contrast. Not paradise, but in the wilderness where he is weak and vulnerable and a world of brokenness and he is faced with temptation and what does he do? He resists and he is loyal to God. And this is imperative. This is essential for our salvation that Jesus did not sin. He is truly the sinless one. And now, because we all fell in Adam, now there's this hope that in Jesus, we have life. We have freedom. That we don't have to be fallen and cursed. That we can be rescued. We can be brought back into a right standing relationship with God. This is the way that 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says it. It says, for sin death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Luke wants you to see this contrast. This is us. But now look at Jesus. Now where will you put your hope? In yourself? In your abilities? Or in Christ? The one who has never fallen. The one who stood and resisted every temptation even in a place of great weakness and vulnerability. He did not fail. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. This is our hope. This is the gospel. Because of Jesus, we can be made right. And so I want you to see this. It all comes down to this. The battle with sin is real, but the battle is really won. He won for us. 
And so now as we continue in this battle, know that the war is really done, but we still fight these battles, sin, temptations coming at us. This is what you must see. This must be a reality. In every waking moment, you must see that this is where victory is. It's in the victor. It's in Jesus, the one who has conquered sin and death. He has crushed the enemy. The serpent had no chance. He has proven this. This is our hope. This is how we will truly fight sin. This is how we overcome is not in our own power, but in the power of God, the spirit empowering us every day, just like he led Jesus into that wilderness and was there with him through the temptation. He is with us. We are sealed with the spirit, God the spirit with us to give us the power and the grace needed to abound in everything that God has called us to. This is our hope. I so want you to get a glimpse of what is real. I want that to define, you know, there's 168 hours a week. 168. How many of those are you asleep? Or you're not consciously making decisions? A lot of the parents are like, not enough. (laughs) I get it. But now think about that. You come to church for roughly an hour on a Sunday morning. You have 167 other hours where something will be shaping you. You must see, when we leave here, and like we sing songs, and I so want you to see, like this is sacred. This is amazing. Like God is with us in these moments in a special way. As we take the Lord's Supper together and fellowship with each other and with God, the one who has reconciled us to himself and to each other. Like these are sacred moments. And they don't stop because we say, see you next week. There's this ongoing reality that you are called to lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow Jesus every day. Not just like, hey, give me a couple hours on the weekend. That'd be great. No, this is our life. And so everything we do, we do it to the glory of God. And that means we must see this reality. The battle with sin is real. Fight it because it will kill you. Fight it. But you know how to fight it? You see the one who has already overcome. You just put your eyes on Jesus. He has conquered. It is done. And suddenly, oh, I don't need to succumb to that. Uh, Commentator Daryl Block, he, he said it like this, like we can kind of get a synopsis of what are these temptations. He said, faithfulness to God involves trusting him, worshiping him alone, and refusing to create a test of his goodness. That's at the heart of these three temptations. And it's at the heart of what we're facing too. Faithfulness to God involves trusting him. Hey, make that rock into bread, Jesus. I know God, the Father, said this about you, but like, if you're really the son, you just provide for yourself. No, 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 I'll trust God. I won't live for self. I'll trust God. We can see that God has always been trustworthy. But seeing how he is true to his promise, even to the point of death on a cross, should remove any question of his trustworthiness in us. Or worship God alone. Is he worthy of our worship? When you behold the good news of the gospel that shows God to be supremely worthy of all of our affections, all of our praise, he alone is to be worshiped. He alone is deserving of all of our lives in service to him. There's no question anymore. We're testing God's goodness. I get it. I'm with you. There are moments in life where it is hard. And honestly, I don't know what the answer is in many cases. Some things are just really hard and we are not God. If we knew what God knows and saw from his vantage point, it would probably make total sense. I'm sure it would. But we are not God. 
And so there are things that we just don't know, but to test and challenge God's goodness is absurd. Even in the moments where we don't understand He is good. We must see he has proven his goodness. It's been expressed to us in the most glorious way possible. Him exalted on a cross. He is good. And there's never a time for us to rightly test his goodness. We should know he is good. So the battle is real, but the battle is really won. Adam has fallen, but the true and greater Adam, Jesus, never fell. He is sinless and he took on our sin as pictured in the baptismal waters so that he could deal with it. He has been nailed to a cross having taken on our sin. The gospel is the good news that God so loves us in grace when we don't deserve it. He lived a sinless life and he died the death that you and I deserve. Our sin, our consequences, our just payment and due wrath for what we have done in rebelling against the God of the cosmos has been nailed to a cross. It is no more. God remembers it no more. And so live in that freedom and love him. See how much he loves you and just love him all the more and fight your sin. Seeing the one who's already won. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. You love us so much that you sent Jesus. Spirit, thank you that you love us so much that you were faithful in being with him and empowering him and now you are in us, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, alive in us. So help us, help us to fight sin. Help us not to fall into temptation. As Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. God, you be God, because we are not and we need you. Thank you, Jesus, that even in great suffering, You saw what was at stake. You loved us. You loved your Father. Help us to do so as well. I love you. I thank you for this church. God, I pray that you would bless it. Um, So many are sick right now. God, we pray for their health. God, we pray for those who are facing so many difficulties in life. Give us your wisdom. Help us, God, to be faithful to what you have called us to. We love you and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.